Welcome to the WIDA Connect podcast series, where we will explore all the hot topics affecting the equipment dealer industry. From industry news, government affairs, and manufacturer relations, to business best practices, technology, and marketing for equipment dealers, brought to you by the Western Equipment Dealers Association, here to advocate, elevate, and educate. And now, let's connect. Hi, this is Mike Kramer, Western Equipment Dealers Association. When it comes to being a consumer, you have to do your homework. Even Olympic divers have to look to make sure there is water in a pool before taking a leap off a platform. Call it being safe. Call it being protective. Call it due diligence. The bottom line is it pays to know what you're getting into. And this leads us to our topic in this podcast, questions dealers need to ask before acquiring a new manufacturer. While this may seem elementary in scope, there are some things dealers need to consider to avoid what could become tripwires in their relationships with their equipment suppliers. To explain it all is John Schmeiser, CEO of the association. Ready to roll, John? Absolutely, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, there are two sections of our topic. In section one, we'll look at the 10 desirable provisions in a contract. And to be clear, we're not discussing these by order of importance, John, because each of these is important. So let's begin with the first. Number one is the term of the contract and legal authority. Mike, we have the privilege of reviewing a lot of manufacturers' contracts over the years, and dealers come to us uh, for advice. And, you know, guidance um, specifically asks the question, you know, should we sign uh, this contract? And the bottom line is it's it's pretty much contract of adhesion. And uh, dealers really have no choice but to sign the contract uh, if they want to be the, the manufacturer's retail representative in the area. And it's amazing on some of these contracts that we review about uh, there's, there's no definite time period of how long that contract really is. And uh, there's pros and cons to having a set time period. Uh, you know, certainly a dealer knows that perhaps three years or five years down the road, whatever the term is, there's going to be uh, additional provisions coming into that contract or there's going to be changes to the existing terms and conditions of that contract. And um, the way we've seen the industry go, it always seems that there's more risk responsibility put on the dealers each time the contract is updated. And I guess what I'm saying is as contracts are changed and updated, we don't see the contracts getting better for equipment dealers. So the time period in those contracts is very important and a dealer really should know what is that time period? When is this contract going to be up for renewal? And, you know, start having those conversations with the manufacturers in terms of, uh, what level of risk and responsibility is really appropriate for a dealer to take on when they sign that contract? Uh, in my experience, Mike, we've seen contracts that have been as long as, as 10 years. We've also seen contracts that renew on an annual basis, uh, so one year. And we've also seen contracts that have no defined term. They are in existence in place until the manufacturer provides an amended or a revised contract for the dealer to sign. So it's all over. It's all over the map. 
This contract is the most important document that an equipment dealer will sign. Uh, we encourage them to, to know what the term is because our industry is changing very rapidly and a dealer should be aware of when his contract relationship with the manufacturer will be changing as well. And in addition to that, the dealer really should you know, be aware of who within their manufacturer has the responsibility or the legal authority to present the contract. It's, it's typically you know, driven out of the legal department of the manufacturers, but uh, by and large, the relationships that dealers have with the manufacturers kind of center around the sales and marketing side and you know, then the aftermarket side and the finance side. But it's important for a dealer to clearly understand who's going to be leading the process from the manufacturer side in putting this contract together. Okay, well, that leads us into another area then. This is called, and it has to do with the contract perhaps, trade area and market penetration, number two on this list. What we've heard from dealers over the years is sometimes their most fierce competition is inline competition from a neighboring dealer of the same color. And we've always heard dealers say their preference would be for protracted territory. Um, so in the contract, it really should specify the dealer's trade area of responsibility. And uh, that's, I think, a great argument to go one step further and have that as a protected trade area. And if there is a protected trade area, what would be the penalty for another dealer selling into that area? These are the things that have to be defined at the time of contract discussion and negotiation. But as a bare minimum, the contract should be outlining what the dealer's trade area or area of responsibility is. And if it doesn't, that sends us a very strong message to the dealer that the manufacturer believes dealers should be able to sell into other dealers' trade territory. And as an industry, that's probably not the best practice. That practice sees the customer win, certainly the manufacturer win, certainly at the expense of the dealer uh, who is signing that contract in that area of responsibility. Related to that, Mike, we think that at the time of contract, it should be defined, you know, what the market penetration expectation is on an equipment dealer. You know, are they expecting you to have a certain market share penetration of 5%, 10%, 30%, 40%, 50%? That should be defined in the contract as well, too, because unfortunately, market share is not an exact science, but it is the metric that the manufacturers are using to measure dealer performance. So dealers need to clearly understand about what type of market share minimums they are required to perform uh, as they are a representative of the manufacturer. And we could talk about market share all day, and perhaps we will sometime. Number three is financial requirements. And this is one of those areas that includes that dreaded wording, personal guarantees. Yes, absolutely. Um, we understand why manufacturers require personal guarantees. From their perspective, I, I, I think we understand where they're coming from and how they need to secure some sort of assets to protect that equipment uh, that are ending up on equipment dealing lots. Personal guarantees have been used as a tool at some times uh, in terms of dealer performance or even um, expectations in terms of how the dealer is performing for the manufacturer's line. In a perfect world, Mike, we would not have the requirement of personal guarantees, but I 
like I said, we understand where the manufacturers are coming from. We would like to see personal guarantees, you know, established and set at the start of the relationship and be reasonable. I, I think that's the least that we can ask. This is supposed to be a partnership relationship and all personal guarantees asked of dealers should at the very least be reasonable. And that should be established again at the time of the relationship that is, that is being started. We certainly uh, don't like to see personal guarantees, the requirement for personal guarantees coming with some of our, our short line or specialty manufacturers. That's a trend that we're seeing that is a little bit concerning to us. And the manufacturers, I believe, have done a, a wonderful job of, exp- uh, of explaining what their expectations on financial stability, uh, what level of assets that they should have. Again, it should be you know viewed as reasonable when this is being put in front of the dealer. But you know the bottom line, it is the dealer's responsibility to be completely aware of what's being asked of them. and and they do have to be accountable to have that that level of financial stability. We see minimum asset requirements creeping into the industry as well. We understand that because the business is getting larger, the equipment is getting bigger, obviously the dollars are getting larger as well too. So it's very important for the dealer to clearly understand what their financial obligations are, what financial information that they do have to provide to the manufacturer on a monthly basis, and really what they are committing to as security when they sign a personal guarantee. Number four in the list of 10 desirable conditions in a contract is product stocking and performance standards. Explain that. This is another area where we get a lot of questions from our equipment dealers. So they're they're looking at taking on a new product line and the manufacturer will have it defined. Minimum, the minimum requirement is the dealer ordering, let's say, two units or three units. And the minimum requirement from a dealer is X number of dollars in terms of parts purchases or X number of dollars in terms of whole goods purchases. That is completely allowable under under this contractual relationship. And in a lot of instances, it makes a lot of sense and it provides the clarity that we need between the dealer and the manufacturer relationship. Every dealer that I speak to, they do want to be good representatives of a product line. And so having this basis and uh, this understanding in place of, of what, you know, the floor is, expectation is, it provides clarity in that relationship. And, and so de- the dealer does know that there is an expectation on them that if they are going to carry a product line, they're, they're, they should be ordering at an agreed upon level and they should be properly marketing and promoting that product. And with, you know, with this minimum stocking requirement and minimum annual purchasing requirement stated in the contract, if the dealer is not performing, I believe it makes the conversation a little bit easier between the dealer and the manufacturer about whether whether or not going forward is in the best interest of, of both parties. So we welcome this provision in the contract because it it clearly sets the ground rules on expectations and it it does help us manage our relationship with our manufacturer. Let's close out this first five of this, uh, of section one, John, with uh, number five, and that is terms of payment. 
Nobody likes surprises in the relationships with the manufacturers, and the manufacturers do have the ability to change their policy manuals and their guidelines on an ongoing basis, you know, as part of their contract. But from a dealer's perspective, we want to know what the terms are. Everything from payment on whole goods, interest-free periods, payments, and expectations on parts and parts ordering processes, anything uh, including reserves or holdbacks, whether equipment is being financed on a recourse or a non-recourse basis, who's going to be paying for freight, what are the freight charges, can the dealer use their own transportation company to bring uh, equipment from the plant to the dealership, what are the floor planning terms, what are volume bonuses, all of these payment issues and financial issues are extremely important. And we have seen dealers make decisions based on these. In the last 12 months, we've had one manufacturer who has decided that they are going to remove their volume bonus program. And a number of dealers indicated to us, if that's the case, they're going to terminate their relationship with the manufacturer. We've had dealers make decisions on how equipment is financed or leased based on reserve as well as recourse conditions where it may be advantageous for the dealer to use a third-party finance company and the dealer removes some risk from themselves because this financial transaction will be done on a non-recourse basis to the dealer. These are extremely important considerations that are in a contract and what we encourage every dealer to do is pay special attention to these terms of payment so they are completely aware of that financial component of their relationship because this is an area where it can bleed the the dealership uh, from money and resources that could be better utilized elsewhere. Okay. Well, that's the first five. That completes the first five in a list of 10 desirable provisions in a contract that dealers need to consider before taking on another equipment brand. What strikes me, John, of course, is while these provisions are for dealers, they really could be used to consider other contracts related to services used by dealers and even consumers. John will talk about 6 through 10 on our next podcast. Thank you, John Schmeiser, CEO, Western Equipment Dealers Association. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Mike Kramer. This has been We to Connect. If you have a question, would like to suggest future topics, or just tell us what you think about the show, we'd love to hear from you. Visit us at westerneda.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to We to Connect on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Until next time.